Okay, so we're going to take a two-week pause from our uh, series on the Lord's Prayer, and we are just going to uh, focus today on Pentecost, because today is Pentecost Sunday, and then next week is called Trinity Sunday, and it's, so if anybody would like to preach on the Trinity next Sunday, I'm (laughs) happy to let you take over for me. But next week is Trinity Sunday, and so we want to focus on uh, just like, what is the Trinity, why does that matter? Um, and, and how does that affect our lives as Christians as we believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so uh, that's kind of, and then we'll get back into the Lord's Prayer, and, and hopefully some of you will be teaching in that series as well. So Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost is the 50 days after Christ's resurrection and when we celebrate, we remember Christ ascending into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. It happens at the same time as the Feast of First Fruits that's happening in Jerusalem. Now, what's really interesting is that the Feast of First Fruits was the time in which the Jews would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate the giving of the Torah. And so it was a time of remembering Moses on the mountain and the giving of the Torah. And if you were with us three weeks ago, I taught on Exodus 19 and the giving of the Torah and and Moses' ascension up the mountain, and I suggested to you that that was a test, that God was testing the people of Israel and inviting them up through what seemed like death into the presence of God. And instead of passing the test in Exodus 19, what happens is the people of Israel fail the test and they send Moses to be their mediator, their intercessor, instead. And so the people say, no, if we go up that mountain, we'll die. And, and so instead, go, Moses go. And so then instead of becoming a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of people who mediate the presence of God with those around them, they became, become a nation with priests. And instead of having them all be priests, they... Um, they settle for having the Levites and Moses intercede on their behalf. Now, this is not a universally accepted interpretation of Exodus 19, but if you want to hear the best case for it, Bible Project, Tim Mackey does an excellent job of explaining the whole literary context and why that sounds like the invitation in the text. I think, personally, again, that it makes a lot of sense, particularly when we move into Acts 2 and we begin to think that this feast is happening parallel to that giving of the Torah. And what we happen to see then is that there are a whole bunch of parallels between what's happening in the story of Exodus and what's happening in the book of Acts. So in Exodus, as the people are sitting at the mountain, there's a trumpet and a sound of lightning and thunder that keeps growing louder and louder. In Acts 2, there is a loud noise from heaven that grows loud in Acts, uh, in number, or, oh boy, I'm in Exodus, the Lord descends on Mount Sinai to speak with Moses, and there's a receiving of a revelation that Moses then testifies to the people. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit descends to the disciples, and there is a testifying to the encounter and revelation of what God has done. Both of these now usher in a new era of history a new era of divine revelation, first with Moses and now with the Holy Spirit and the disciples. 
Third, there's a focus on the Lord's salvation and an offer of a new relationship with God and the people in both Exodus and in Acts. It's a different salvation. It's a different way of connecting with God, but both of them focus on that key piece. Fourthly, in Numbers 11, which is kind of happens around that same time as Exodus 19, there are 70 elders who are filled with the Spirit, and two of these elders then begin to prophesy as a result of the Spirit filling them. Which in Acts, people are filled by the Holy Spirit, men and women, and then they begin to prophesy as a result of the Spirit's filling. When Joshua talks to Moses and tells the leaders, he actually tells the leaders to stop, and Moses replies in Numbers 11:29, he says this, would that all of the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And now at the church's Pentecost, the fervent request of Moses is fulfilled. God's spirit has indeed been put upon the people and they are all becoming prophets. This is as Joel pro- prophesied and is quoted by Peter in his speech in Acts 2.17. And finally, one last parallel to draw out that I saw is that Joshua opposes the prophesying of them. Temporarily, he he changes his mind pretty quickly. But but at least initially, there is some opposition to the prophesying that is happening. And in Acts, the scoffers who oppose the disciples saying, well, they're just drunk on new wine. And so what we see in both of these stories is a parallel of now God's spirit coming. It is Acts 2 is the fulfilled desire of God for his people, ushering in a new revolution of the intimate. God's spirit comes upon the people and is no longer, they are no longer the presence of God mediated through a temple, priests, or prophets. But all people are filled with the spirit of God. They are all prophesying. They are all declaring the salvation and relationship that they have with God through Jesus. I love this picture. Um, of just the, the, the movement that you seem to get as the fire comes through and the wind blows. Because what's happened here, I think, is a callback and a fulfillment of God's desire. Now, there are two things in the story of Acts 2 that I want us to look at today. Uh, I'm deeply indebted to um, the African theologian Willie Jennings and his commentary on the book of Acts. It's just absolutely incredible. And... Um, his, his insights to this story I found particularly helpful. I want to talk about the wind and what it means when they speak in tongues and what that means for us. Let's start with the wind. Uh, we are all very familiar with the wind after the last couple of days and these gusts of wind, 60 miles an hour or whatever it feels like. Uh, I recently invested $300 into my bike and the way I justified it was I said to Nikki, I will ride my bike and I will make up $300 in gas money. So I am riding my bike everywhere and with all those big gusts of wind, I was saying, I've got to still go to meetings down over on Attridge, I'm going to ride my bike. And so I'd get on my bike and there were moments when I was coming down hills and the wind was pushing behind me, I was hitting 50 kilometers an hour, just whipping, it was great. And then I would turn the corner and I would stop. Or it would almost knock me over because it would get a gust on the side. Wind is this amazing, powerful force. It is so violent one day and so gentle and cooling the next. Wind can be 
the bane of your existence, and it can be one of the most pleasurable things in the world. I decided a few years ago that if I could have any superpower in the world, it would be to control the wind, uh, because I think you could do just about anything with the power of wind. And if you'd like to talk to me later about superheroes and why wind is the best superpower, I'm happy to have that debate later. The Spirit of God is seen throughout the scriptures as the pneuma, the, the breath, the wind of God. It is the creative force that hovers over the creation waters. It is the Spirit that creates, that moves, that blows. And here we read in Acts 2 that the disciples are waiting for God's power to come. They are praying and waiting, waiting and praying, praying and waiting and waiting. And all of a sudden, there is a roaring, some translations say violent wind as God's Spirit moves into action. And so I like what Willie Jennings writes. He says, the similitude which means similarity. I don't know why people have to use big words. But the similarity of the wind of the Spirit suggests not only its absolute power, but its absolute uncontrollability. No structure is stronger than the wind, and there is nothing beyond its touch. How much greater is the reality of the Spirit than this weak metaphor? When Nikki and I uh, moved to Mexico for nine months. We left our acreage abandoned, well, almost abandoned. We had a young guy stay in and take care of it. And I think we'd been in Mexico about a week, and a big windstorm blew through, and Nick sent us these pictures, and half the shingles on our one side of the roof were gone, and the other side, we'd lost another whole patch. In fact, as I was thinking about wind and I was thinking about acreage in spring, there was always this, this period of time which I dreaded in spring because the wind, you get those big spring winds, but the leaves haven't budded yet, so the shelter belt isn't sheltering anything. And so we had this big shop across, and, and all the shingles were kind of wrecking on there. And one spring, the wind was coming, and I, as we sit in the living room, I could see kind of the wave <laughs> along the shingles. <laughs> and so I got my ladder and I'm climbing up the ladder with tires and I'm placing tires down to like hold them in place and I'm putting everything down trying and then the wind came and it blew my ladder down at which point I just sat down I gave up on the roof I pulled out my phone and I texted Nikki I'm like Nikki you need to come out and save me <laughs> I'm like I'm stuck here on my roof the wind Jennings says there is no structure stronger than the wind there is nothing beyond its touch. Indeed, the wind in the coming chapters, the wind of God's Spirit, is going to blow the disciples all over the known world. It is going to blow apart their presuppositions about who is clean and holy and who is a sinner. It will blow Stephen out to meet a Gentile man of a sexual minority, and it will lead to his baptism and the explosion of the church in Ethiopia. Peter will be blown into the the house of an occupying pagan colonizer, and he will share food and lodging with his enemy, and he will encounter the Spirit of God blowing down the barriers between people. Paul will have his whole world blown apart 
as everything that he gave his life to know and learn and understand is upended by Jesus, and he must relearn the entire Torah in light of this revelation of Jesus. The power of the Spirit is much stronger than our theologies, our institutions, our prejudices. The wind of God will blow where it wills. It is uncontrollable. Maybe this is why the the Celtic church would use the image of a wild goose to describe the Holy Spirit. It is strong. It is wild. If you want, you can harness the power of the wind. You can work with the wind. The wind will blow you in a ship from one end of the earth to the other. In fact, I actually just heard about a coffee company in Ontario that's building a sailing ship to bring their coffee from South America back up to Canada because it's cheaper, more effective, and faster than using these oil ships, right? They said, we can be environmentally friendly, we can get it here faster if we work with the wind. When you work with the wind, there's power and it moves you. But you can't fight the Spirit. And you can't fight the power of the wind. And so the violent wind of God blows into the disciples. And full of God's transformative power, she blows them out the door, and the disciples begin to speak in the language of the people around them. Maybe this is a moment like Mary's intimate moment when the Holy Spirit overshadows her. This time, though, the the Spirit creates something different. And so Jennings writes, the Spirit creates joining. The Spirit creates joining. The followers of Jesus are now being connected in a way that joins them to people in the most intimate space of voice, memory, sound, body, land, and place. This is what Jennings calls the revolution of the intimate. Because what is more intimate than a good, deep, conversation, uh, thirst-quenching words spoken in your own heart language. I'm not sure how many of you have had the opportunity to spend an extended time in a place where people speak a different language than you. But there comes a point when you are away and in a place where nobody speaks your language or sings in your songs, you just want to hear English again. (laughs) I just want to sing a song as much as I love it in that language. I just want to sing it the way I know it, the way I learned it. I want to sing and worship in my own tongue. And just think about those who have now been in Jerusalem. They've come, they followed their religion, but through centuries of exile and migration, many of these people no longer think or talk in the language of Jerusalem. And yet here they are, and maybe they're beginning to feel a little homesick longing for a good conversation in their own language. And all of a sudden, there's this commotion, and 120 excited men and women are jumping out onto the streets, and they're excitedly shouting and speaking, and you understand. You hear this testimony about the goodness of Jesus in your own language, and so you become joined to those who are speaking. Jennings writes, the disciples speak in the mother tongues of others not by their own design, but by the Spirit's desire. The new wine has been poured out on those unaware of just how deeply they thirsted. This famous account of Luke is the epicenter of the revolution. Here is the unfolding moment that will define the drama of the book of Acts. And surely the disciples, 
when they were told to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit's power to come upon them. Surely they were not expecting the gift of tongues. Because language, speaking a new language, requires submission. The miracle of Pentecost requires the disciples to submit their mouths and their bodies and their hearts to be joined with people who are different than them. We all know that to learn a new language requires submission to a people, even if that person is only your teacher. We must submit to that voice to learn what words mean, and as we talk with them, we become bound to the events, songs, jokes, practices, and habits that all shape those people. All of us who have attempted to learn a new language know that it is an incredibly humbling experience. Nikki and I have very different ways of learning language. Nikki wants to get it right, to know the grammar, the structure, the pronunciation. I just want to talk to people. And so in Mexico, Nikki would, will cringe while I spoke in Spanish at what could generously be described as the same level as a three-year-old. And I loved it. And I do live most of my life oblivious to the thousands of social mistakes that I make. Uh, and if I don't know the language, then I'm just even more unaware of what is happening around me. But I felt so deeply joined to Charlie and Vale and Isra and Jamil and Vienne. As we talked, as I learned, as they took me around their country and took me to the places to eat and they showed me how to buy things and to negotiate. And as we sat in cars and we talked, as we drove around the city, I was joined to the people, to their place, and to the things that they loved. So Jennings writes that most, however, who enter a lifetime of fluency do so because at some point in time they learn to love it. They fall in love with the sound. The language sounds beautiful to them. And if that love is complete, they fall in love with the original signifiers. They come to love the people, the food, the faces, the plans and practices, the songs, the poetry, the happiness, the sadness, the ambiguity, the truth, and they love the place that is. The circled earth, those people call their land, their landscape, their home. Speak a language, speak a people. My experience in Mexico reminds me of the truth of what Jennings is saying. Learning Spanish in Mexico made me completely fall in love with the people, the food, the places, the music, the landscape. When I hear Spanish at the grocery store or in the gym, it's all I can do not to interrupt the conversation with my horrible three-year-old Spanish and begin to talk to them and find out where they're from, what do they do. Learning a new language made me want to know not just the language, but the people as well. I've always wondered about this gift of tongues at Pentecost. Like, do the disciples get to keep speaking that language after? Like, does that, is it a one-time thing where they could just speak Parthian or something and then it's gone? Or is it that they always had that? Did they have to go and learn and do language studies after? Surely for the disciples, to have the gift of speaking in another's language meant that they too felt joined with those people. In the incarnation, God spoke to us. God became one of us, ate our food, learned our music, laughed, 
tried, made plans, walked the land, not only is this a powerful act of salvation for us, it is also a powerful act of love, of joining with humanity. And so Jennings says, God speaks people fluently. God, with all the urgency that is with the Holy Spirit, wants the disciples of his only begotten Son to speak people fluently too. This is the beginning of the revolution that the Spirit performs. To speak the language is to join with people. The challenge that the disciples will face in the, as the book of Acts continues is that the Spirit of God is blowing ahead of them and they are slow to catch up. This is the ancient challenge for the early church. God's wind blows into such unexpected places and joins them with so many unexpected people that it takes a long time for the disciples to catch up. Unfortunately, we have the same modern problem. The Spirit blows and we are left running after the Spirit, being blown out of our comfort and our security into the lives of people different than us. But the Spirit calls us to join together with them. The Spirit unites people, transforms people as we join our lives with them. And if we are to learn something from the story of Pentecost, it is that the violent wind of the Spirit blows and transforms the disciples, and it builds love into the disciples. Karl Barth, the German theologian, says that love goes into the far country. This love cannot be tamed or controlled or planned, and once it is unleashed, it will drive the disciples forward into the world and drive the question into our lives. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us? And into whose lives will we be joined? Question I leave you with today. Where is the Holy Spirit taking us? And into whose lives will we be joined? Amen.